0: When we get to the point where people are using, for example, running or exercise as an escape from perhaps a not-so-great family or a not-so-great job or a traumatic experience in the past, this is where we can start to see where it almost becomes an addiction.
1: That was Daniel Klucho, and this is episode 119 of the Inspired Souls podcast.
2: Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Today's guest, Dan Kilcho, identifies foremost as a husband and father to his three amazing children. He is an advanced psychotherapist who's trained with some of the foremost leaders in the psychology field in Canada. His practice as a clinical counselor includes somatic focus work on mental health experiences, including severe depression and anxiety, pain management, addictions, sexual health, and complex medically unexplained conditions. Dan is also trained in other modalities such as EMDR, DNF, and other evidence-based cognitive methods. He specializes in forest therapy and holistic approaches to achieving overall health and wellness. Dan also served several tours overseas as a military pilot. A lifelong athlete, he has participated in sports since an early age. A 35-plus year practitioner of karate, as well as a trained triathlete, skier, and hunter, he'd like to spend much of his free time participating in and playing sports. They are integral to his optimal mental health. In this episode, we have a fascinating conversation with Dan about running and mental health. We discuss how running and physical fitness plays an important role in mental health, the benefits of running with regards to mental health, neurochemical responses that take place during and after running, how runners can prepare for and handle the crash after a race or during taper time. We talk about is there a dark side to running and your mental health, and where you should go if you feel you need further support. We sincerely thank Dan for taking the time to discuss these important topics with us. So Dan, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. It's great to have you on the show.
0: Yes, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
2: We were just having a real fun moment reminiscing because dad and I go way back. Like we met... In 2007, we were just um, figuring out, way back in Comox, British Columbia, when I lived there as a physiotherapist, and Dan's given me permission to share that, yes, he was my client. I treated him for, what was it, your shoulder? Was that it, yeah, Dan? Yeah, I was,
0: I was broken a lot, but I think it was the shoulder that started it.
2: <laughs> so you've always been really active, Dan, and you have always had something on the go. You wear multiple hats. And so today we have you on the show to talk about several of those, both the athletic and the mental health areas of focus in your life. But here's, here's a real fun fact. I sat in the very spot that Dan is sitting in now, recording the first year of this podcast. And he then bought my house when I moved to Calgary and is now sitting recording this podcast in the exact spot. And this just occurred to me. And I just think that's so wild. So, anyways, it's kind of a little bit... Uh, but anyways... <laughs> Um, That's the first time I've ever sung on this podcast. So without further ado, Dan, why don't you give us a little bit of background as a little bit more about who you are?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I always like to start off with the things that are most important to me. So I'm a father and a husband. I have three amazing kids, uh, one set of twins and an older daughter. And and they're awesome and amazing and fun and everything that I focus on and try to do. And so, and I'm also to partner, the other half, to uh, my wife, Lisa, who we've been married almost 12 years. And so that's that main part that I like to identify with. But on the other side, like you alluded to, I have many hats. I've, I do many things. And so you met me and you mentioned you met me as a military member. So I joined the military in 2001 and uh, I'm a pilot. In the military, I have flown the CP-140 Aurora on both coasts. Uh, now I'm living in Winnipeg, like you mentioned, in your old house. Um, mm-hmm. And I work at the uh, headquarters, the one Canadian Air Division headquarters. That's my kind of primary day job. What I also do is I'm one of the owners of Nomina Wellness. So Nominal Wellness is a mental health company that focuses on complex mental health or treatment-resistant mental health. So we do the things that a lot of other people have struggles with. So we do treatment-resistant depression, we do suicidality, we do chronic pain, we do addictions, we do all of the difficult things that exist out there for people who struggle with the Tougher end of the mental health spectrum, mental health disorder spectrum. So, I'm one of the owners with Lisa and one of our other business partners. I'm also one of the lead counselors there. I'm the clinical director of Nomina Integrated Health Winnipeg. And I'm also a counselor. So, I can maintain a private practice uh, on my own where I focus primarily on chronic pain and what we like to term psychophysiologic pain. So, that means pain that's generated from the brain. So, it's not an actual injury. You don't have a broken arm that would explain the pain, your arm is fine, but you still feel pain. And that's what we work on. And I use a few different psych- uh, psychotherapeutic modalities to target those underlying psychological issues that may exist causing that pain.
2: So what in the world inspired you to become trained as a counselor dad? You know, military pilot, You know, Air Force guy. How does that connect? Was it your wife that kind of piqued that interest in you? I know she's a psychologist, but what took you down that path?
0: Yeah, and that's a great question, Um, and a lot of people ask it because they're kind of not congruent trades; they're not jobs that kind of go hand in hand. No. And I actually, after coming back from Kuwait, uh, I believe it was in 2014, I saw the effects of of trauma, of post traumatic stress. On myself and a lot of my coworkers, a lot of my crew. I went out there as a crew commander and I was very ill-equipped to handle it, both in myself and in the people around me. And right about that time, I was going back to school. I was focusing a lot on biology. I really wanted to get back into, I wanted to get into medicine. That was my goal. So I, I wanted to become a physician. That took a while. Um, and while I was waiting and while I was applying, the opportunity to start a master's in counseling psychology came along and I figured well that'll only make my application look better to med school but then I realized I really like psychology and I'm I'm pretty good at it I think Mm -hmm, without mm -hmm. being too humble braggy about it and it's something that resonated with me and it just kind of blossomed from there and I did my master's and I finished that and I've taken some advanced psychotherapeutic modality training afterwards and here I am.
1: Well, you mentioned earlier that these are some like depression, suicide, chronic pain, like these are some of the the complex issues that aren't well treated in other parts of our medical system, right? And so what do you think it is about you that is drawn to such a complex problem? Like to be, and, and you mentioned like you're, you're pretty good at it too. So what mm-hmm. do you think it is about whether it's your training or just like innate personality traits that um, make you good at this job?
0: I think it's a combination of the things that you just mentioned. I think I'm a very type A personality. Most pilots are. I don't think I've met a non-type A pilot. Physicians are very similar, and oftentimes there's a transfer between pilots and physicians. Very similar personalities, very similar backgrounds, very similar ways of approaching issues and problems. And I think that's what really helps me in this job is that I can hold multiple ideas in my mind at the same time. It's kind of like flying an airplane because... If you've Mm -hmm. ever been in one there's like gauges and buttons and things doodads everywhere Um, and you have to kind of be thinking always five steps ahead of what could happen and i think that's really helpful in psychology because when you look at how somebody's brain is functioning or perhaps maladaptively functioning it's helpful to understand the theory and all of the educational pieces that come in as well as what they're bringing to to the table because it's never like the textbook And so being able to adapt on the fly, I think, is something that that really helps me do what I do.
2: No pun intended. (laughs) Yes,
0: love it. (laughs) Yeah, so we this is a
1: fascinating topic. And I really think quite widely applied to our our audience, right with runners, and we're going to dive down that rabbit hole very deep. But let's before we go there, let's just learn a little bit more about you, because I understand you've got quite um, a sporting background yourself and um, some experience with running too. So tell us a little bit about your, um, you know, background in sport.
0: Yeah, I think I started sports right from the time that I could walk and it was something that my parents really valued. So I was always on a team. I was always on a volleyball team or a basketball team. I did a lot of fun stuff with track and field. So most of my early running when I was young was short distance. I really enjoyed the running. I enjoyed the community. I enjoyed competing. Even now when I go to a track and I smell, you know, those rubber tracks, the red rubber tracks, and I smell that smell. It just brings me back and kind of both calms me but excites me at the same time Mm. because I remember all of that adrenaline from when I was young and I competed at the provincial level and BC summer games and so I, I was I guess I don't know if high level applies to high school athletes but I was competing on those kind of provincial stages and then after I left high school I joined the military at 17 years old um, and then I got into more longer distance running because that's very military, right? Morning, 6 a.m., go for a run. And I realized how beneficial that was again for that calming aspect on my mind. So throughout university, I did karate, volleyball, played hockey. I did some standard running, but no real races. Um, I got out and I continued running as, as really like a maintenance piece for my mental, but mostly my physical health. When I was 22, I really didn't have any problems that I could complain about, especially looking back now from where I am right now.
1: (laughs) Oh, to be 22.
0: Exactly. (laughs) So it was something that I did just kind of because it was something to maintain my fitness. I would run, I would go to the gym, I would play hockey, I'd play soccer. I just do things mostly for the social and physical health aspects of it. Then I uh, met my wife, Lisa, and she bought me a road bike uh, for road riding, bicycle, And I really got into triathlon uh, for the first kind of half of our relationship so far. So I've competed in multiple triathlons. Uh, Sprint and Olympic distance are my kind of go-to's. Uh, but I've really always wanted to complete an Ironman triathlon. That's kind of my goal has always been to to do the Ironman in uh, Whistler or Penticton, wherever it ends up being. Yeah. Yeah. I was yeah. training for it one year, and then I dislocated my shoulder. And so that makes okay. swimming hard. Was that when
1: you, you and Kim met?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's so I was training for that, and that was, that was kind of right in that area where I was trying to, trying to do that. Oh, um, cool. And then I moved to Nova Scotia, and I did some more triathlons out there, and then we had kids and life kind of changes gears when you have kids and my kids were almost two months premature. So they spent six weeks in the high, in the ICU in Halifax and okay. your know, priorities kind of change. And so they were fairly mm. high needs in the first few years of their life because they were just so underweight and we need to spend a lot of time with them. So that kind of derailed that. And then as I've kind of, as they've gotten older, I've kind of got back into running and, it's really easy to run here in Manitoba, like no disrespect to the runners here, but it's really flat. Yeah. It's, uh, I think uh, there's one hill and it's artificial. And, yeah. It's uh, made of garbage. It's made of garbage, yeah. <laughs> so and you, you have to drive to it to get to it. So That's it's right. it's one of those things that, uh, you know, it's I like running out here. It's, it's nice. And-
2: you recently did something rather interesting. Tell us a little bit about your Special Forces uh, shadowing experiment.
0: Yeah, so I uh, came across in just some idle searching one day at work, the there's a pre-enrollment package for Special Forces members who want to try to become Special Forces members. So this isn't even what they go through. It's how to build up their physical and mental stamina to the point where they can even think about starting the selection process. And it's a 12-week program, and it's, um, it's intense. It's intensive. And I can send you both the link for it. You can, it's something that's available widely online. Um, and it, you can see, and your listeners can see the level is. But it's essentially, it's 10 workouts a week. So two workouts a day for five days. There's an active recovery day in there and then a rest day. And it involves weightlifting, calisthenics, running, sprinting, and marching. So those are the main components of it. But it is a grueling exercise. I think I managed to get to about week eight before I went on vacation to Ontario, and then it just kind of fell off. <laughs> but it was, it was intensive, where you're running in the morning at uh, eight, above 85% heart rate, and then you have a few hours, and then you hit the gym for a heavy, heavy legs weight workout day. And then the next day, you swim in the morning, and then you do a 20-kilometer a uh, ruck march with 70 pounds on your back. So it was one of those things where it really tested your physical metal, but also your mental metal. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of that crossover happens, where I know with you, Kim, running for 100 kilometers is so much of that is is mental. Like clearly it's physical too, but but that mental piece and and wrangling that brain back and saying and stopping it from convincing you to quit is such a big thing.
2: Yeah. So so that comes to the why, like, I, I know you posted a bit on social media on your Nomina Wellness um, accounts about why you decided to do this, this program. Uh-huh. And it was a little bit about exploring the, the mental aspect of doing really hard things. Uh-huh. So tell us a little bit more about that.
0: It's one of the things that I and a lot of other mental health clinicians have noticed, especially over the last two, three two, three years. Mm-hmm is resilience is a word that comes up very often, and more so in the terms of lack of resilience. People Mm -hmm. seem to be less resilient now than they were maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And part of resilience is doing hard things. And you can build resilience. And that's one of the things is you're not always born with it. Yes, you can be born with it. Yes, it can be fostered and developed through childhood and adolescence. But people who aren't resilient can develop resilience. And my goal in doing this crazy training program was to see what it was like to be pushed to a limit and then try to convince yourself to keep going. And Mm -hmm. that's that ultimate definition of what resilience is that helps and translates into other parts of our lives. When you're sick and you need to take care of kids or when the finances fall fall off the table and, and things are not going well or the relationship breaks up. What is that thing that keeps you going? And that's resilience. And if you never have tested it or you've never developed it in the past, it's really hard to call upon it in those times where you actually need it. So this was like a an experiment under controlled circumstances where I got to push myself because I, I am a fairly physically capable person. I tend to, like we've talked about, it. I've done sports my whole life. And so I am good at these things. And mm-hmm. so this was something that I could look at and I, could, and I remember looking at it and getting little bit bouts of anxiety going, oh mm-hmm. my, what what is this going to be like? Like I might not be able to achieve this. Some of these timings, some of these uh, weight repetitions or weight loads are above what I think I might be able to do. And what does that mean for me as a person when I'm already used to doing everything well or excelling mm-hmm. at all of these things? So that was mm-hmm. really the crux of why I wanted to do this is what does it feel like to not be good at something and to try really hard to push yourself to continue on with that. Right.
1: I feel like Do Hard Things is having a moment Mm -hmm. right now. It is. Like um, Steve Magnus just published that book, I'm not sure if you've read it yet, called Do Hard Things. And what I really took away from that book, and this might be like the opposite side of the coin of what we're talking about here, is that sometimes, and particularly for military people athletes, people that are good at pushing themselves, like you you identified in yourself, sometimes the do hard thing can be to actually take a day off. <laughs> do you ever For see sure. that yeah. um, kind of that opposite? Like I am driven naturally, right? I want to do, 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 but like we can do so much that we bury ourselves Uh from all the doing. Right. And so sometimes what I notice as a running coach is that those people won't take a day off when all signs are pointing, like you've got a fever and you're like, you're sick, like take a day off. And do you ever find with your clientele that they do struggle with, with the resting part of the equation?
0: It, it all depends. I have found on what the motivation is behind why they're doing what they're doing.
1: Uh Um
0: doing something because you enjoy it as it's your hobby and your pastime and you want to excel at something because that's an intrinsic need for people is to be good at what they do and if you want to be a good ultra marathoner it's natural that you want to dedicate a bunch of time to that but the people who have a balanced life around that and they're supported by their family and they're supported by their job and their finances in achieving that goal are much able to self-reflect and say i'm tired today i need a day off because they know what keeps them well when we get to the point where people are using for example running or exercises an escape from perhaps a not so great family or a not so great job or a traumatic experience in the past this is where we can start to see where it almost becomes an addiction and that addiction is seeking that high and we can talk about some of the neurochemicals later but seeking that high and that distraction away from the thing that maybe needs to be addressed. But because the subconscious protector of ourselves, our our ego protector doesn't wanna go there because it may be painful, we just do something that's physically painful. And the brain will often prefer a physical pain as opposed to an emotional pain Uh. because it can justify the physical pain easier. That's what I see a lot.
2: Well, okay. So I definitely want to go down this path a little bit more. Typically as we, Carol and I do, we just dive right in there, but I want to pull us <laughs> back a, yeah. for a moment to the basics. Okay. So let's just establish why running and fitness, physical fitness type activities plays an important role in maintaining mental health in the first place. Like, why is it something we should even be talking about?
0: Yeah. And that's a really great question, because it's sometimes hard to see that link. You're like, well, how does my brain, which is this like intangible, like my feelings are not, they're like metaphysical. And then running is a very physical act and they don't seem to connect. But what we know is that movement is life and it has been for the entire existence of our species. We have always moved to find food, to follow food, to find shelter, to find resources. And it is ingrained within us and our brains have developed to support this. Our our bodies and our brains have developed to encourage us to stay active and to stay fit. And so much so that they reward us for doing so in the same way that we get the same feel good chemicals. When we eat a nice sugary treat or a high fat or high salt type of food, we get rewarded because 200,000 years ago, we didn't have McDonald's and we didn't have big bags of sugar to find something that was sugar, which is a pure energy mechanism was great and your brain needed to reward you and and try to encourage you to do that. Same thing with running. And there are multiple neurochemicals that are activated during running that help support that. And they balance our neurochemical state and also have physical effects that help us feel better and actually be better and be healthier.
2: So we're going to come back to the neurochemical aspects in a moment because that's a huge topic. But, you know, I almost think of the benefits of running for me personally as in two parts, both the intrinsic and the extrinsic benefits, right? Intrinsic wow. is that hormonal um, high and the, the physical fitness you gain but then there's also like, let's be honest, the the ego, right? The, the, I'm proud of myself for doing this and I look oh. better because I'm fit and I just feel better when I'm strong and I can lift that box and not have to ask somebody to lift it for me, or I can run this distance. So, you know, can you maybe explore a little bit of that part of how, running and exercise can help a person's mental health? And is that always okay? Is it something we want to pursue? Or is it something maybe that we should feel guilty about?
0: And again, that, that's a really great question because we want to figure out why people do what they do, right? If you decide to run because you only want to look good, that could be a problematic reason for spurring on physical activity. But there's nothing wrong in feeling pride about being, being able to achieve a certain distance or a certain speed or have a, a certain strength or to set aside a healthy body goal for yourself and achieve that healthy body goal. Some of my clients go from couch to 5Ks, and I'm sure yours do as well, and they just feel better. It's, it's less so about the, the looks, although that is a, a great secondary benefit because they can feel good about themselves, it's what is that goal that's really driving them? Do they want to be healthier or do they want to look better? Because you can look good and not be healthy. You can be healthy and also look good at the same time. You can be proud of yourself. You can be proud of your achievement and your transformation and the efforts that you've done. And then having that self, self-reliance is also important, right? You mentioned being able to lift a box without needing help, right? Those are being able to know that you could run for help or being able to know that you could in an emergency, carry somebody or or drag mm-hmm. somebody out mm-hmm. of a burning car. Those are those things that that reinforce positive self-regard. And that's what we try to develop in, in my field is positive self-regard. We don't want to go to the place where it's too egotistical because that can become harmful to our relationships where we now start to think mm-hmm. we are better than others because we're stronger, faster, better mm-hmm. looking, thinner and that's not where we want to go because it's really like i'm sure you you t- tell this to a lot of people and i do is the race is really with yourself and mm-hmm. that race applies to everything it applies to your career it applies to your finances it applies to your physical health it applies to the races that you want to run because ultimately if you focus on those external factors you will be disappointed because there'll always yeah. be somebody faster there'll always be somebody fitter there'll always be somebody that's more beautiful and if you mm-hmm. if you stop focusing on the people that are are better so to speak air quotes and you focus on how you've improved that's where you get that reinforced positive Mm self-regard
1: And then earlier you mentioned, yeah, actually, I think you've mentioned it twice about like really getting somebody to identify, like, why am I doing this? And and there's actual exercises you can take people through. And I often do that at the beginning of working with somebody like, what's your why? You know, and it seems like this uh-huh. ephemeral question, like, what is my why? And most people say things like, I want to feel better and I, I want to be a good role model for my kids. But what I find is either it can change as your relationship with running changes or that why sounded good until like you're back to into the corner and now you are teetering on an injury and you're still out there running on it and it's like, that what you want to teach your kids? You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. so or you're so obsessed with the sport now that you never see your kids. Exactly. Right. And and it's like sometimes I kind of write those wise down early on to to be able to generate a conversation. Later, when Mm -hmm. the relationship might not be as healthy as it maybe started out as, so do you ever see that in your practice, where maybe the actions don't necessarily support what the verbal "why" Mm -hmm. was in the first place?
0: And I think you touched on a keyword there: balance. Balance Mm -hmm. is really important, and why we do something and why we do anything—they all need all of the "whys" need to balance each other out. Because if we skew one "why" more than the others we will have detriments in the other parts of our lives. And so I have seen that. And sometimes people like to convince themselves of something that may not be true to themselves. There's a great book, I believe it's John Fredrickson, The Lies We Tell Ourselves. Mm. And when you describe working with somebody and trying to figure out the why, it could be that Instagram model they follow. It could be that neighbor down the street that their partner maybe, they caught their partner taking a second glance at. Those are the things that s- kind of slip underneath the defenses. And then what mm. is socially acceptable to say is I want to be healthier. I want to be a good role model. Those are the those right. are the socially acceptable reasons. But as Kim alluded to, saying that I want to look better and I want to look good naked, that's the part that kind of seems selfish or seems egotistical. and We don't want to say right. that, even right. though it's great to look good naked, right? Like yeah. that's probably half the reason that I work out is because I want to look good for my <laughs> partner, right? And myself. Yeah. And so yeah. this is one of those things that we do. And, But you have to be honest with yourself about why that is. And it's not the only reason why I do it, because I I know there's a whole bunch of other reasons that I I enjoy it. And this is where people need to kind of sit down and have that heart to heart with themselves and go, do I really want to be a healthier person or do I just want to be fitter or do I want to be thinner?
2: Yeah, I love what you just said about really being honest with yourself. So, you know, Carolyn said, yes, we sit down, we write our why's they change? Are we truly staying aligned with them? I actually just recently read a book written by somebody I actually went to university with called Lemonade, squeezing your challenging life experiences into something positive. And it was written by melaine Mullings. And one key thing she had in there was tell yourself the truth quickly. And the key was quickly. Like if you are really analyzing and honest with yourself, don't sit there and debate it for five years. Like quickly acknowledge that you're not telling yourself an internal dialogue that you're aligned with and then move on from that. And that is something that has stuck with me just even in the last three months. I'm like, oh, is this narrative I'm speaking really the truth? And if not... (laughs) let it go fast, like don't hang on to it.
0: Yeah. And, and that's because the danger of living a narrative that's not true, the longer you live it, the more true it becomes. Mm. And so then your truth becomes skewed to this new truth and that becomes the dangerous part where you lose yourself. And I have a lot of clients who don't know who they are. It's a very common phrase that I get in a first session, I don't know who I am anymore. And it's because yeah. they're not living their truths, they're living somebody else's lies or maybe their own lies. They're convenient lies, they're flattering lies, but they're not true. And then you get a friction in between inside somebody where you've got what they true, their true values. And then some of these may be external values or imposed values from family or culture or society, whatever that happens. And that creates friction. And then they experience anxiety or depression or any host of, of, of uh, mental health disorders just because, like you said, they w- weren't able to ask themselves that truth and ask, answer it quickly.
1: Yeah. And so you're saying though, it's, it's so interesting because you're saying you work with this exact population, people that have some of these mental health challenges and it's maybe the manifestation of living out of alignment with who they truly are or trying to like live out somebody else's story, but it doesn't feel true and and Uh authentic and right to them. And so is that how it's showing up? It's showing up in our body. It's showing up with like, I can't, function in my day-to-day life and uh-huh. and there and therefore it seems like oh i've got this depression or i've got suicidal ideation or i've got this chronic pain but uh-huh. really is that the body talking and saying like no 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 we're going down the wrong path like i've i've always heard that the body holds things like the body Um, whispers before it roars, like all of that kind of thing. Can you speak to that at all? Like how often do you see this showing up, especially in athletes who tend to know their bodies a little bit better than somebody else?
0: Yeah, I think it's best to kind of uh, understand in a basic concept, human psychology. And so we have a conscious realm of our mind where we can do taxes and we can plan trips and we can buy presents in the future. That's that prefrontal cortex part of our brain that's developed recently that's the part that allows us to be functional humans that can go to the moon. And then we have an ancient part of our brain that protects us. Its job was to protect us. The amygdala is our protector, and it saves us from the tigers and the lions and the bears, but it also saves us from pain. Right? Uh, as a basic, as a human, we are pain avoidant pleasure seeking. That's just what we do. That's how our psychology is designed. So when we look at things like depression, when we look at things like anxiety or suicidal ideation or chronic pain, things like IBS or irritable bowel syndrome or GERDs, gastrointestinal reflux disorder, these are all symptoms of something that's underlying. And this is where we at Nomina approach uh, mental health differently than a lot of other places is where we don't try to treat the symptom. We try to figure out what's beneath the symptom. And this is where you're getting at, I think, is that what is that that's going on underneath that is causing that? And we have a very poor way of learning about ourselves in our culture. And I'm speaking about Canadian or Western culture. if we look at any of the more ancient cultures, if we look at indigenous Canadian culture or or North American indigenous cultures, uh, Viking cultures like the Scandinavians or a lot of African cultures, there is a point at which you go out to find yourself where you go mm. on this long distance journey that's difficult with no food. Perhaps you take psychedelics and you figure out who you are or you wait until it comes to you. Often days, sometimes weeks of no food, delirious states. And this is where the true self shines through. And I'm not advocating for this because they did it in a very controlled mechanism. It was a, a ritualized process you can't just go starve yourself in the woods and maybe you can i don't know i've never tried it but it's one of those things that they had as an integral part of their culture from proceeding from childhood to manhood or womanhood and that was part of it And we don't generally have that and so it's very hard to figure out who we are on top of it we are bombarded by 24 7 social media and mainstream media telling us how we should look what we should say and what we should buy and how we should dress and the ways that we should act which may not be genuine to who we are, and so there's this huge conflict within us, and that can express in those things that we see clinically as as mental health disorders.
2: Well, we have ultra marathons. <laughs> That's why people do these things. No, I, I'm I'm joking, but I'm not. Like no, seriously, I, I... there. I've I've written before that the long ultras, like things that take you through a night and into the next morning, they're pilgrimages. They're not races anymore, right? They are, they are explorations of a person's inner psyche. And I think that's why the allure of them is growing because we don't have these things in our Canadian North American culture anymore.
0: It's very stoic. And the stoicism that used to exist in the past of persevering through suffering is very different in our culture where we have a pill to take away every minor ache or pain we want. And we live in relative luxury compared to humans for the whole world.
2: Yeah, we manufacture our suffering. We like pay money to go suffer. Like really? (laughs) It's quite a privilege to choose your suffering.
0: It is. But I think that tells us how integral it is to our psyche and our development is that life has always, up until recently, has been hard for different reasons. Life has always been a struggle against mother nature and uh, neighboring factions or neighboring kin groups. And Mm -hmm. it was harsh and it was unpleasant and it was cold and it was brutal. And there was a lot of suffering, but that made by comparison the pleasurable and the happiness that much more profound for us. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that. We're just left with what is ostensibly pleasure and happiness. That's what we're programmed right. to, to seek. We want to be happy all the time. That's why we give ourselves, we, we do drugs and we drink alcohol and, and we try to alter our mental state to be always happy all the time. But that's not realistic. And that's not how mm-hmm. our body developed over hundreds of thousands of years. It was mm-hmm. a balance. And yeah, it sucked when half your tribe got some sort of disease and died. But then when you had a whole bunch of extra kids and it was a very, very uh, fertile kind of period and you increased the size of the tribe or the clan or whatever you had, there would be celebrations and each each festival at, at the harvest would be this huge party. And so people could experience those positive emotions much more fully because they were genuine, because compared mm. to suffering and losing 20 people out of your 100 person kin group, mm. it was that much better.
1: Yeah. And I don't think it's really any secret, like perhaps it's, it's more so you're seeing this more so in ultra marathons, but even within road running, like it yep. tends to attract people that have like a pretty comfy life, right. Mm-hmm. For the mm-hmm. most part. And so I guess my, my question, like, are we always running these things to create our own suffering and, and balance out that like life's pretty good and and let's get some suffering in here? Or is there ever, can we strike that healthy relationship or balance with the suffering that we choose?
0: I think so. I think suffering all the time is bad um, and that will cause people to die. To be honest, if you yes. suffer all the time, uh, if it's an emotional suffering if it, or a, a physical suffering, your body will wear down and you will die. Um, and that's just, there's no two ways about it. Like you will. Yeah. So, so being able to, to juxtapose the positives create that balance is important. And so, again, going back to what we've been talking about is the why. Why are you doing this? Are you doing this to suffer? Are you doing this to suffer because you feel like you need to be punished? Or do you do this Mm -hmm. because the suffering will help you strengthen yourself later in terms of that resilience that I spoke of earlier? And that, again, it all comes down to the why. And it's really hard to ever diagnose somebody without digging beneath the surface. And figure out yes. why are they doing this? Why do they want? Why do you want to suffer? Because that's a, re- a weird question to ask somebody. Why do you choose to suffer? Like I've thought this about Kim multiple times: is why would you choose? <laughs> why would you choose to do this? Like I couldn't imagine being awake for 24 hours, let alone running for 24 hours. And but but there's there's got to be that that all of those positives that come along with it, right? That that big slice of pizza that you have afterwards that tastes <laughs> so good, right? Or that. Yeah that hug that you receive at the finish line feels so much better than just a normal hug would because you've suffered for so long and that's okay. Right. You can, you can play with pleasure and suffering together. And, and as a sex therapist, I I see that all the time as well, but it's one of those things where you can develop that in in non-sexual ways as well. And it just makes both of those things that much more profound for you. Mm
2: -hmm. Oh my goodness. There's so many directions. We could just go with what you just said, but let's just pause on the pleasure pain kind of conundrum there for a moment, because I have often said that childbirth and running an ultra create similar situations for me you know I've had two children uh-huh. you, you you sign up for this you're in you, you think it's going to be the greatest thing when you're in the middle of it you're like why did I do this, this is the worst decision ever I'm never having another child right. I'm never having another race as soon as it's over you're like we're gonna have another one or, yeah. or sign me up for another one or this is the cutest baby ever Or that was the best race ever and when you were in it you're like I'm never doing this again. It's the worst thing ever. And aren't, like, I'm not a psychologist, but aren't those parts of our brain very, very closely connected, right? Isn't it the same part of the brain that gives you pleasure and pain? Or can you explore that
0: a little bit? Yeah. And so without getting too kind of into the sex therapy realms of things, they've done studies and they've put someone in an MRI machine and they've smacked them on the leg with like a whip. Like they just took a person in a lab coat and smacked them on the leg with a whip and they watched the brain light up in the machine. Now they took that same person who has maybe more of that BDSM kind of lean towards them, the bondage and sadomasochism side, and they had someone who dressed up as a dominatrix with the leather and the stuff and very hypersexualized, slapped them in the same way in the same machine. The brain lit up in the same way, same spots in the brain lit up for pleasure as, as for pain, but the way that it was interpreted and perceived, was pleasure versus pain? That's the, key. And I think uh, the that's interpretation. Exactly.
2: Okay, so I don't know if this is a good time now, but I want to bring us back a little bit to the neurochemical. Perfect time for that. Of, of exercise.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that that helps us do what we do is the reinforcement of positive neurochemicals. So we have lots of neurochemicals in our brain. They have all sorts of functions, but we have certain ones that help reinforce behavior, and when we run we know that there's five main neurochemicals that get released in the brain naturally. And that's the key is they naturally get released. And the first one is serotonin. I'm sure lots of people have heard about serotonin. It is one of the main chemicals that's targeted in depression. So antidepressants target serotonin in different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not enough serotonin gives you that lethargic, depressed feeling. But running or exercise in general, but specifically running will boost natural levels of serotonin, which then means you don't feel bad. And then conversely, you feel good. And so yeah. their mood, bo- they're mood boosting, like you can, you've described it, right? You finish a run and you feel good, right? You've got this like flood. You're like, I want to do this again, right? That's your brain tricking you into doing something horrible again, because it wants <laughs> to feel good again, right? So that's yeah. how your brain <laughs> works. The other is uh, norepinephrine. So sometimes called noradrenaline. Uh, so there's adrenaline, there's noradrenaline, or there's epinephrine and norepinephrine. And those are the alert chemicals. Those are ones that keep you awake. Those are the ones that get triggered uh, in fight or flight. Uh, those are the ones that give you hyperfocus. They uh, send blood to your muscles and they set you up for activity.
2: This is how you stay awake for 24 hours because you're so full of adrenaline.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the norepinephrine is a little bit shorter lasting or longer lasting a little bit less intensive so that the epinephrine will give you that like and then your your lungs go and your heart goes and your blood pressure goes up and the norepinephrine also gets released at the same time they, they're generated in the same glands um, but they're triggered by neurochemicals and those are the ones that help so uh, the benefits of those are are things like more alert more focus better memory recall. Uh, As long as you're not overwhelmed by them, because a lot of people will, if you're in fight or flight, they lose memory. But -hmm. if you can control how much is is sent out, a lot of people, myself included, do my thinking while I'm running. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I know music. I have two types of runs. I have a a run for pleasure, which kind of is the sadomasochist part, run for pleasure. And then there's the run for effect. And my run for effect is when I want to figure something out or something's bothering me or have an emotional process that I'm stuck with. Then I go for a run. No music, no watch, no distance, no time. And it's really just pavement, feet, and brain. And that's all I think about. And the norepinephrine helps you be alert and focused in that way Mm. to be able to do that high-level thinking. And oftentimes, I'll find the solutions to my issues, or at least insight into whatever it is that I'm doing while on my run. Then we have a brain-derived neurotropic factor. That's like a horrible-sounding one. And I don't remember it. It's BDNF is what we, what we call it. And it promotes the formation of new neuron connections. Your neurons are, are the parts that make your brain think, right? They're the ones that do that. Your brain is made up of neurons. And the more connections each neuron has to the neurons surrounding it, the better it, it will be at working, right? It's kind of like a highway that only goes in one direction and connects two points is less effective than a highway that connects 17 points because it becomes efficient to you. So you want to make sure that you encourage that um, neural pathway generation. We talk about this a lot in therapy is we want to generate new neural pathways. You have to generate new neural pathways because the old ones are like a rut. So the new ones have to get generated from somewhere and talk therapy can do it. But running also encourages that. And BDNF helps you connect neurons with their neighbors around them. It just increases the efficiency of the brain. So it's easier to think. You're less tired when you think you're able to recall things, unique circumstances when you encounter them will be um, adapted for much more easily. So those are the like the real benefits of having a very well networked neuron system within your brain.
1: Is this the one where they say it's like miracle grow for the brain, the BDNF?
0: Yeah, so it's one of those things where for a long time, they thought that you were born with a bunch of brain cells and then they would just die until you died, right? They would just get less every every year until you eventually died. And that's not really true. We do generate new neurons all the time. And we can see this in head accident or head injury victims and and people who've had head trauma. And even in when you look at uh, MRI studies or uh, CAT scan studies of people who have come through addiction, they have different structures of their brain, but when they are sober for a certain amount of period, the brain, periods, the brain starts to restructure itself and it heals and it grows new neural connections. And the BDNF is very important for that. And that's why I recommend to every, every one of my clients who's not active to get active. Mm. Because when you're trying to create connections between your past events and traumatic events and your current behaviors, you want to have a very well-adapted mental system, which comes from that neuronal complexity, you want to generate that more. And people will make connections while they exercise or after they exercise because you've given them the tools. You've done the psychological work, primes mm-hmm. the neural, neural pathways, and then you've done the physical work with, which reinforces them and allows them to grow into new and hopefully adaptive ways.
2: I love this.
0: <laughs> and then finally, the biggest one that you, I'm sure, are most familiar with is dopamine. Dopamine is the feel-good hormone. It's like the reward chemical. It's the one that runners, the runner's high, comes from that. Like it's a mixture of serotonin and dopamine. But that's the one that when you eat something really tasty, you get this flood and you just feel really good. It's released during sex. Uh, cocaine stimulates it. Right. All of these things stimulate dopamine production, and those are the ones that make you feel good. And they reinforce behavior because. Like I said, if you want to to eat something sugary, which gives you a lot of calories and that means you're going to survive, your brain's going to reward. You're you going to want to eat more of it or you're going to want to go find more of it. And this is where we run into issues where people struggle wrestling or wrangling in their biology when they go, I want to eat McDonald's all the time because it's tasty. It's got a perfect balance of fat, sugar and salt that the brain just goes, I love it. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm loving it. It's that's the slogan for a reason. And it's because your brain is chemically programmed to love it. In the same way, uh, connecting with your child after you have birth, right? Dopamine is released after birth, right? That what you were describing, I've never given birth, but but I've observed it uh, a couple times. And there's those chemicals, right? Oxytocin, which connects the mother and the child together. That's a feel-good hormone. It soothes the central nervous system. These are all things that make you want to do these things again, because it is important for our survival as a species or as you as an individual to survive. Eat more sugar means you're going to survive to your to your ancient brain. Mm-hmm. Your ancient brain doesn't know that you can go down to a supermarket and buy a 10 kilo bag of sugar and just pig out on sugar all day long. Right. It doesn't know that. But if it was if there were no inhibitions, it would because that's what it's programmed to do.
2: Okay. So this is very interesting. And I think this is a perfect time to ask, all these hormones on all these neurochemicals sound too good to be true. Like this is awesome. Let's just get high on these all day long, all the time and just run forever. But (laughs) is there a downside? So when, you know, particularly with dopamine, it it trains you. It's dope, right? Like you want that (laughs) hit, you want that high and you can, you know, running very much can become addictive. For sure. Any runner who's trained for any specific event and then done it. Or have been tapering. We all know what the taper tantrums are. You know, I used to go to work at a physio there, Dan, and my coworkers would be like, "Okay, Kim's tapering. We're all prepared <laughs> um, to stay away from her for the next three weeks because she's going to be grumpy as hell. Get out!" And then after the race, there's that post-race crash that many mm-hmm. Randy rudders experience. And if mm-hmm. you haven't experienced it, I think you just haven't been paying attention. So you know, how, what's the downside of these neurochemicals? How long do they last? And how can we manage our need for them?
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a very kind of multifaceted, multilayered question.
2: Yeah, I know. So I'll
0: try to address all the parts of it, and if I've missed one out, let me know. Okay. But, but to your part is you do get addicted to these chemicals because of the way that they're generated the same way that someone who may be addicted to cocaine seeks that high regularly the same way you can get addicted to feeling good, right? That's what I said earlier is that we're pleasure seeking pain avoidant beings. That's yeah, just who wouldn't want to ultimate... feel good? Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, what that means is, and we see this a lot in addictions is that you get used to that amount of dopamine. So you, you will need more the next mm-hmm. time to achieve the same mm-hmm. effect. Mm-hmm. And that's where it starts to become difficult, where as you ramp up your training, you are ramping up your dopamine, right? The more time you train, the more hours you spend, the harder you go. Right. You will build up a tolerance for dopamine. And so when you describe temper tantrum or taper transforms, I love that term, by the way, taper yeah. tantrums, <laughs> you are now basically in withdrawal, of (laughs) all of those feel good chemicals that you've now trained your body to accept on a regular basis. And now you're no longer getting them in that same way. So your mood will like serotonin, right? Mood, mood stabilizing chemical. Now you don't have that as much. Mm -hmm. So you're going to feel down or you're going to feel cranky or you're going to feel like, like there's more pain. And, and I haven't had too many taper issues. Like I, I did a little bit at the end of my special forces. And I remember, everything hurt. I don't know if that's pretty common yes, during taper yes, Taper for yes. long distance runners. And
2: it freaks people out.
0: <laughs> yeah, so like your joints hurt and your hips hurt and you've got chest pains and you've got all sorts of things. But that's because now all of those things, I forgot to mention endorphins, right? Endorphins mm-hmm. are pain relievers. And right. so now you've no longer got those coursing through your brain anymore to relieve the pain. And now maybe it was there before and you just weren't feeling it or, yeah. or maybe your standard level of discomfort was being masked by these endorphins and the dopamine and the serotonin. And now you're now left with what's underneath, what's underneath right. all those neurochemicals, And unfortunately you are in like a mini withdrawal. And then when you ramp it back up for that one race, you give yourself that last shot. And then you're, and then when you're done, your brain just crashes because you have got nothing left. Right. Because yeah. these neurochemicals require both energy and nutrients to be generated. And so things like phosphorus uh, th- th- found in omega-3s, uh, calcium, a lot of salts help with that central nervous system uh, functioning when you've um, depleted them, when you've spent so much time building them up and using them and then tapering and then the last shot where you get everything, all the last little bit of phosphorus. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you crash and you're in a, well, in a harder type of withdrawal. And then mm-hmm. people get sick, people get depressed, people spend a mm-hmm. lot of time in bed. Mm-hmm. And it's not just mm-hmm. physical recovery. Mm-hmm. It's your brain is recovering. Your brain is a muscle just like your legs are and just like your lungs are and you train it. And it now is is depleted and it needs to recover. It needs to rebalance, find its previous kind of natural resting state. And then you can kind of start again. And it varies for each person how long that takes, but it can take days or weeks for some people just to get out of that. And it's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant.
1: Well, it, it just occurred to me there as you were talking, because Kim and I have probably heard this like a thousand times already oh, yeah. <laughs> on the podcast of, you know, I took up running and I really liked it and I did my couch to 5k and then I signed up for a 10k and then I signed up for a half marathon and a full marathon and then I was doing the ultras and then it's the multi-day ultras. And it. so what you're saying on the neurochemical level is that there might be an actual explanation for why we do this.
0: Yeah. For sure. If I just
1: keep training for five Ks, then I'm not really upping the ante. Like I get kind of habituated to that level of training and I need to for take sure. it to the next level in order to get the hit of dopamine and serotonin yeah. and everything yeah. that you're talking about. So is that does that make sense from the it, biochemical level?
0: Yeah. And it all ties back into that question that we've approached several times is why are you running? running. And if you're running to escape and if you're running to get away from something. Uh, Maybe a difficult home situation, or a traumatic memory from the past, or or some sort of big T or little T trauma, then your motivations, your reasoning is the same, is almost the same. I don't want to conflate the two because addictions is serious and it's a different level, but the reasoning is very similar as to I'm running away from my problem, and the neurochemicals help because when you're feeling good you're not feeling bad. And that's the same reason alcoholics drink and the same reason drug addicts use all sorts of different substances is because they want to feel good and they don't want to feel bad. Because being in their mind and being stuck with themselves and being stuck with whatever it is that happened to them is painful, emotionally painful. And our brain, that subconscious part, that ancient part, cannot tell the difference between a physical threat and an emotional threat. And if Sadness is deemed a threat by your subconscious protector or anger or even happiness. If they're deemed a threat, it will defend you in the same way it would defend if if I placed a bear in the room with you Mm -hmm. and it will react in a very similar way. And so by running and achieving all of these great neurochemicals naturally, you may be creating distance between what that triggering event may be, that trauma that is there by running and by achieving the natural kind of doping of your brain, so to speak. Um, and that's why you can see people escalate, right? People can go and they seek, go from a 5K to a 10K to, a, and then when you're doing multi-days, what do you do after that, right? Yeah. And then and then, then you're it's like a drug addict who goes, well, I can't take any more or it will kill me right? What do you do you after can't a multi-day?
2: possibly run anymore than that. Exactly.
0: What yeah. do you do after yeah. that? And then people are left holding the bag because they have no more chemi- neurochemicals chem- left and the thing that they've been trying to run away from catches up. And I don't know what your experience is with people who hit that. Like, I don't know what the longest race is in the world, but there, there are people who will want one longer, right? Who yeah. will want one a day longer or There's whatever. There's
2: always more. There's always more. So this is actually yeah. really interesting to me. I'm going to ask you a question I didn't necessarily tell you I was going to in advance. So say somebody both has maxed out in their physical capabilities, right? Like the 3,600, you know, race that happens in New York where they just run literally all summer or somebody who runs across the country or whatever you can't do anymore. Mm -hmm. Or somebody who has crashed post-race, right? Mm -hmm. They've, they've used up all of that serotonin and dopamine and and endorphins, and they're now in a low what can they do other than get out the credit card and sign up for 10 more races <laughs> or immediately start running again and put themselves in a position of overtraining syndrome? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What can, what real like tangible skills and tools can a runner kind of, pull out of their toolbox in, say, the post one or two weeks after a race to help manage that crash? Like have a bubble bath, <laughs> um, you know, go on family vacation. Like what are some things that they can do to boost those hormonal levels to offset some of that crash?
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's a very kind of pragmatic question from somebody who's experienced the crash. And it's really hard to say that. Because it's a, a biological mechanism, there's not a lot we can do to help boost those neurochemicals back up faster. But the one thing that I will, would say, and I would suggest in for those people who are in that post-race crash, who are in that low, who are in that kind of the doldrums of the, the fatigue of post-race, would be to connect with people, to connect mm-hmm. with your family, to connect with your friends, to not isolate. Because we can we do get some of those chemicals by interacting with other humans, mm-hmm. with our cat, with our dog, right? There's tons of research that shows, yeah, oxytocin, which happens with skin-to-skin contact between humans, improves mood, it decreases pain, right? There's a bunch of studies that have been done on infants in the ICU about when they, sometimes they need to get heel pricks, right, for blood counts. And when they're skin-to-skin with their mother, they perceive the pain as less. And so connecting in those healthy ways that you have maybe or you've maybe been shunning because of a high training regimen or something like that, Mm -hmm. going out with your wife or your husband or your partner or whoever, spending time with your kids, wrestling with the dog in the backyard, those connecting and grounding activities will help you through that period. Just like we would tell somebody who is detoxing from perhaps heroin or cocaine to go surround yourself with positive people give yourself good nutrition or drink lots of water, like all of the things that you can do to, to manage your biology and then your social aspects as well, because the psychology is, is, is shot, right? You've, you've used up the chemicals Mm -hmm. and they just have to, they just have to regenerate. They just have to come back on their own. And this is where you get back to that stoicism to go. I know I'm going to crash and I'm going to persevere through it, but I'm going to surround myself with the people that make me feel good about myself. And it'll be that much easier.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's, again, this is all so fascinating because I think something you said earlier was like athletes, especially like we tolerate that physical pain a lot better than we tolerate the emotional pain. But in this post-race period, it's like, we don't have that physical pain to kind of distract ourselves from Uh the emotional pain. So it's almost like Uh, weirdly if you flip it it's like an opportunity to start to work on like maybe what the actual real underlying issue is that I was using running as a solution but now Mm -hmm. oh, there it is because like wherever I go there I am right Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so eventually we have to address some of these things head-on so you're saying that the connection the social connection helps right but is there anything like beyond working with a trained counselor like you Do you ever see people just literally don't know what that emotional pain is for them? Like it could have been that capital T trauma, but it happened to them when they were six months old. So they don't have like a physical memory. Like how do we go about figuring out what our issues are, Dan?
0: (laughs) And that's the hardest part about this whole psychology thing is the reason we call it an unconscious or a subconscious is because it is not conscious. If it was conscious, we could be like, oh, I totally understand it. And we could make those connections ourselves. And unfortunately, the only thing that we can do and the only advice that I would have is, what are those symptoms or those markers that tell you that there may be something that is is wrong or or maybe not even wrong that needs addressing? And that's where you start to draw out, why are you running? What's happening to you in the taper period? What are your taper tantrums about? What are your dreams telling you in your taper period or in your post race period? Right, because dreams are our subconscious avenue to the conscious, in many cases. And I, I work yeah. with a lot of clients who, when they're ready to address their trauma from six months, that those are intrinsic traumas because they're not ex- extrinsic or explicit. They are able to go back there and deal with some of those things. But the markers and the signposts go, hey, there's something wrong. Hey, you're running too much. Hey, you're avoiding your family. Mm-hmm. Hey, you're not connecting with your son or your daughter or your mother or your father or your aunt or your uncle in the way that like a healthy person may yeah. connect with somebody. These are all indicators to you that, that maybe you do have something there because you mm-hmm. may not know. The brain is really great at blocking out mm-hmm. things well, that yes. you may not want to know. There is a le- legitimate process in the brain that will cause you to forget things because they are too painful doesn't mean that you're not carrying them along they're not they're still not weighing down on you you're just not consciously aware of them Uh and this is where we start to notice right irritability anxiety depression chronic pain right i had a client way back once who had shoulder pain issues similar to me nothing wrong with her shoulder she had x-rays fancy 3d x-rays CT scans, oh, not CT scans, sorry, MRI. She had every test you could possibly do, and there was nothing wrong with her shoulder physically. She had no memory or recollection of everything, but irritability started to to build, poor sleep started to build, bad dreams. Finally went to see a therapist. We worked together. Turns out there was some abuse in her past, and at one point there was a shoulder dislocation by the the figure in the person. Uh The brain suppressed it, that, because there's a clearly there would be a lot of emotions surrounding an event like that, right? Especially as a child, right? Are they okay? Are it acceptable emotions? Do you have to repress them or not repress them? Are they safe? Are they not safe? Especially mm-hmm. with an abusive parent, what does mm-hmm. that mean? Children only are programmed to survive, so they they will mold themselves to yeah. survive within the family unit. So now mm-hmm. this person, twenty years later, is chronic shoulder pain, and they don't know why. They were going to give her a shoulder replacement. Uh, but for no reason. They had no medical reason to. That was the extent of the medical system. Wow. But it turns out there was a dislocation that happened when Josiah was young, and we worked through it. We we managed the emotions. We It was a painful process for her emotionally to get through this stuff. Um, lots of complex emotions about the father and herself and the mother and the protector and the brother. It was very co- – like because our relationships are so intertwined, there was a lot to go through there. But after a couple of years of working together, no more shoulder pain, No more need for uh, shoulder replacement.
2: Wow. And that's
0: how powerful the brain Mm -hmm. is, is that it would rather take emotional pain, stuff it in the shoulder, and then (laughs) feel it as physical pain Mm -hmm. than to address the emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And that's how powerful the brain is. We call it somatic. Somatic means in the body. Mm -hmm. And that's where we look at things like chronic pain, fibromyalgia small or large muscle neuropathy, GERDs, IBS, migraines. I even had a client who had chronic pneumonia eight, times, eight to ten times a year. But because the emotional anxiety was stored in the lower part or the, in the diaphragm, it didn't allow it to open and then it was subject to infection. Mm. So our brain is so capable and so powerful, but sometimes not to our long-term benefit. It's great at All protecting right. us right. right now but not so much in the future. So to answer your question, what can someone do in that lull period is be on the lookout for those, those signposts that may indicate that there's something wrong. And then, yeah. I'm, and, and I wish I had a better answer, is you will need someone who is trained at unlocking the subconscious mm-hmm. to help you do that, right? Even therapists, even I go to a therapist because I can't mm-hmm. unlock my own subconscious. Exactly. So you, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. well, if I may, you know, I've had enough of these post-race periods to start to learn the patterns and how it works. And for me, it's not so much what I do in my post-race period. It's what I don't do. Mm, it's yeah. clearing the schedule. It's not going right into a massive project at work, ideally. It's not a bunch of stress. It's, it's really just giving myself space and time to think and process it's not always about the race. You're right. It's about the things that come up during the race. Um, Race reports and blogging has been huge for me. You know, some of my most biggest breakthroughs Uh personally have come. It's usually 10 to 12 days after an ultra. And I've just started to recognize it. I'm like, I'm not even going to try to start writing and journaling until at least a week has passed. And then it just comes out in a rush. Uh And so I think that's really important is to give whether it's, you know, if it's a shorter race, it might need one or two days. If it's a big a marathon or longer, you might need a week or three weeks to really mm-hmm. just clear the schedule and let yourself um, process, for lack of a better word, some of the things that may come up, right?
0: It's, it's 100% processing because your brain is always seeking to understand the world around it, but also the world within you. And yeah. so you by giving yourself a break... After a race, like a big race like that, even if you're taking two weeks and you're cutting off anything that's not required for family and job, and yeah, it's not really... just
2: physical. It's not just not running. It's life.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. But sometimes, sometimes yeah. you, you, as you know, as a mother, right, as, as somebody who you don't have the opportunity to just say, "I'm just not going to mother for two weeks,"
2: right, right, right. It, yeah. just,
0: right. it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's where that, that stoicism and that's where that perseverance can come in and help you, and you can develop. Mm-hmm. Those things, as we talked about a little earlier, right, but you right. also cut off everything that's not there. Allow your body to recover. Allow your brain to recover. Allow those neurochemicals to really restabilize. And then, when it's ready, you will be ready. And right. that's where you describe the onslaught of of just like ideas mm-hmm. that need to mm-hmm. come out. Is mm-hmm. you don't push yourself. You. You give yourself a break. You give yourself some self-compassion. I teach a lot of self-compassion. Not so much self-esteem, but self-compassion. Be compassionate to yourself. I just ran for 24 hours straight and my body is tired. I spent six months training or whatever. And I'm depleted and I'm tired and that's okay. I'm not a bad person for being tired. I'm not a bad person for being maybe a little bit depressed because I know that I've done this and I've used this store. I'm proud of myself for completing it or whatever. I'm proud of myself for placing or whatever your goal was but i'm just going to take care of myself and that's where you get the mm. bubble bath and that's where you go for the massage and that's where you go for the acupuncture and you do that self-care stuff but you also intersperse it with some family stuff because or or human connection you go to bingo yeah. you go to whatever it is movie night or book club night or whatever because that is what's going to help you come through that that mm. dip that much better mm-hmm. is that human connection. And it may be difficult. This is, again, doing hard things. It may be yeah. difficult to kick your own ass out of bed to yeah. go to book club mm-hmm. night, but it, you will feel better for it afterwards. You
1: never regret it after you go, right? right? Sometimes yeah. you cannot feel right. like going, oh, yeah. I'm going to skip it tonight. Exactly. And then you come home, like, in such a better mood Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for it. Yeah, that's real. Yeah,
0: And I, I often will get my clients to write these things down, right? What are my tools in the toolbox, right? Mm-hmm. I love how I feel after book club night or after right. movie night with the, the crew from university or whatever it ends yeah. up being, you write them down. And so when you're in that phase where you're just like, Oh, I just don't want to get out of bed and you have your little notebook beside your bed and you go, Oh, maybe I should call whatever and let's go play some bridge or maybe yeah. we should go do whatever. Right. Because they're proven methods and that, that, that physical yeah. reminder can help you spur it on to get actually motivated to get out of bed. Yeah. And oh, back
1: wow. to kind of the this community that you're talking about, right? Those connections. Uh-huh. Often I think those are the people who are noticing the patterns in us mm. sometimes before we're noticing them Fair in it. ourselves. Right. And yes. so those people that can be honest with you and say, look at I've noticed this, you know, pattern. Uh-huh happens every time, like after you've run the race or whatever the oh. case may be, but it is those patterns. Like it comes out in like, I always do this and this makes no sense. Like, why oh, do I do oh. this? I think when we can tune in with self-compassion to those parts of you that are like, wait a second, like that, it makes zero sense why I do oh, this oh. or that or the other thing. That's maybe the, the doorways into discovering that, inner world, right, that you're talking about or that those emotional um, yeah. pains that we may need to address with, with a professional. Yeah. So this is all very, very fascinating. Now, my, my next question, I don't know if we have time to talk about this, but we've talked about this on the show before of like this idea of addiction transfer. We sometimes see these people that have been alcoholics or struggled with drug addictions or whatever, and then they find marathon running or ultra running or whatever the case may be. Um, mm-hmm. Is that a real thing? Is addiction transfer a thing that you see? And and what's the mechanism going on there in the brain?
0: For sure. So uh, I haven't heard it termed as addiction transfer, but it, the concept underlying it is very, very real. And when we go back to what I was saying about how there's a, a an issue, let's call it a trauma for this this. The symptom is the addiction, let's say. Right. When you take away the addiction, the subconscious is still not going to want to address whatever it is that was painful. So it will need to do something else in order to Mm. continue to avoid it. So when people become sober for a long time, then they get into, uh, we call it monkey mind, super busy all the time. They become workaholics, right? Uh, Because the subconscious needs a new defense. And so Mm -hmm. so a lot of people will switch substances. So someone might start off as an alcoholic, they'll quit alcohol, but then they'll switch to cannabis or they'll switch to cocaine or they'll switch to ketamine or they'll switch to something or they'll switch to uh, maybe a behavioral. Yeah. Yeah, So it might be disordered eating, or it might be gambling or it might be shopping or it might be technology. We're seeing technology addiction Mm -hmm. skyrocket these days, especially Mm -hmm. among youth. But, Really, these are all just like your subconscious has a a list of things and it will continue to go down that if you take if you make it impossible to drink alcohol because you put someone in rehab, they'll find something else. They'll eat chocolate bars all day long. Or (laughs) if you take that away, they're going to get super hyped up and cause a disturbance because the disturbance will distract them from whatever's going on internally. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that kind of addiction transfer, as you kind of uh, described it, could be a very real thing for someone who may not have addressed whatever it is that was necessitating the addiction in the first place. And this is where I would suspect you would see more people escalate in the way that you described from a 5 to a 10 to a 20 to a Mm -hmm. full to a Mm -hmm. where they're now replacing one defense, one addiction for another defense in this case, running addiction. And mm-hmm. again, it's why are you running, right? It seems to be the central theme of our talk today. And we started off with it is why do you do what you do? And right. we never ask ourselves that question. And that's kind of the key component to mindfulness is what am I feeling and why am I feeling it? What, yeah. am, what do, What's going on for me right now? Why am I feeling this right now? Why am I running? Why am I upset with my kids when they do X, Y, or Z? Why am I feeling this way when my partner doesn't do something or does something mm. we don't ask ourselves that we just end up in a place where we're reacting and what, what we try to build is a space between what happens and the reaction and in that place is time for reflection and growth and understanding and conceptualizing ourselves within a larger system when you get diagnosed or when you suspect you have a mental health disorder or you work with somebody and they do tell you you're suffering from generalized anxiety or, or some sort of mild or major depressive disorder or whatever it ends up being, oftentimes the go-to will be medication. That'll be, that's our medical system. Like I don't blame them, but it's the way that our medical system approaches fixing problems. We fix the, fix the symptom and then we're good, right? A lot of people go on antidepressants, for example, and they'll be fine for a period of time. Because it's managing the symptom, but if we go back and conceptualize it from that trauma issue, the trauma is still there. It's never been addressed. So then they're going to need more or different antidepressants to continue on because they develop a tolerance. In the same way that uh, we address those mental health disorders with medication, we can also get very similar and good results naturally from exercises like running. And I, I think I mentioned it earlier: is we I often will or almost always will prescribe a, a exercise regimen which if they're able, includes running, because in the studies, they've been able to show that people who take up some sort of exercise regimen like running will achieve almost the same results as they could with medication. Mm. So for example, if you give a person, let's say, who's suffering from a mild depressive or a mild some sort of depressive disorder, an antidepressant, between 5 and 30% of them will feel better on that antidepressant. If you take the same proportion of people and you prescribe them a a four-day-a-week running regimen, between 5 and 25% of them will feel better. And so you're getting to the point where you're achieving almost similar results from a natural system as opposed to something that's chemical, something that will have usually significant side effects. So most antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications will have some sort of not pleasant side effect it could be as simple as dry mouth all the way to increased depression suicidality decreased libido so lack of interest in connecting intimately or sexually with other people right which are all important components of our interaction with human beings right Mm -hmm. we want to connect with people but if we can't that's very difficult now to be healthy Mm -hmm. and i always look at medications as a tool in the toolbox they are important at times if someone is unable to talk to you because of how depressed they are you need to stabilize them, right? They need to stabilize medically and then tack on the exercise and then you do the psychological work integrating the social support. In the same way, if you broke your leg, you would want somebody to give you pain meds because it would hurt. But then you would want someone to fix the leg, set it, give it time to grow, and then you would have to do physio afterwards, all the while reducing your pain medications as the pain theoretically alleviates due to the Mm -hmm. healing that's going on. Mm -hmm. Same thing, same, that's the same way I conceptualize working with clients is yes, you may be on an antidepressant or any kind of medication. We start working together. You no longer need it because you are developing connection. You're developing awareness. You're developing your own Mm -hmm. skills to be able to manage those issues without the medication. And so for, for most of my clients, they taper themselves. They go, I don't need this bed anymore. The side effects aren't worth it. I'm going to try and cut my dose in half and they do. And they feel just fine. And then you continue to work and then they do it again and again and again. And ideally, right. that's best done with a physician or a pharmacist, at least, because right. you don't really want to be changing your own meds. But the end result is people like to take, take to go off of those meds once they start to right. feel
1: better. That's great. Oh. That is amazing. Yeah. yeah. So if somebody is listening to this and they have identified themselves in our conversation today, like What message do you have for them? Like, what's the first step in terms of getting help and support for this?
0: So the first absolute step is being okay with not being okay. That is the first step. Because when you're not okay with not being okay, more defenses come. It gets worse. When you go and look at yourself with self-compassion and go, you know, these things happened to me and I have been struggling and I'm okay, but I'm struggling it. And it's also okay to get help because we've developed this very individualist perspective in our society that we have to fix everything. We have to be in control all the time. And it applies to parenthood. It applies to being a manager or a boss. It applies to being a friend. It applies to being a mentor. uh, It even applies to being a doctor or a therapist. We always have to have our our SHIT together. Yeah. Yeah. And if we don't, that means we're lesser of a person. But that is absolutely not true because everybody at any given time will – Will falter and struggle and stumble, and this is where we want to be able to acknowledge it and say, "I'm okay that I'm not okay." That's the first step, and then being able to say, "How can somebody help me be okay?" That's the second step, and it could be it could be a religious um, figure in your community that you trust that has uh, a bunch of insight. It can be a cultural person, it can be a friend, it can be a therapist, it can be a doctor, it can be any number of people who can help you along this journey to to rebuilding yourself back to the place that you want to be. But you can't do it if you never acknowledge it and you never give yourself a break.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I think that's, I, I love that you highlighted that. Like it's, it starts with acceptance. Like this is happening. You don't have to like it, but to accept that it's happening is probably step number one. And now if like, are you taking on new, new clients? Like if somebody wanted to work directly with you, how would they go about doing that?
0: Yeah. So I, I generally have a long wait list. Um of course, which... you're so good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you what? have a
2: full-time career in the military still.
0: I, I do too. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I don't, exactly. Um, but yeah, so we have a team of of clinicians, right? We have offices in uh, Southern Ontario, Saint Catharines. We have offices in Winnipeg. We have offices in uh, Comox and Courtney, British Columbia. But with the advent of virtual therapy and the the statistics and the studies show that it is as effective as in person therapy, we can be reached from anywhere. So finding out um, who might be close by, uh, perhaps even in our clinics, because as a like we we really. Uh, focus on this um, philosophy of not the symptom, but the cause. And that's kind of the hallmark of all of our clinics and all of our clinicians who are all really great at their job. They all have their own focus, uh, foci, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, kid, I don't work with kids, for example. We have people in our Winnipeg and our St. Catherine's offices that do work with kids because right. they, they need their own support. We have people that focus on gerontology, older people, right? These are all specialties that we have. So finding the right person is important, but it all starts with a phone call. And if, if, if people like what I'm saying and what I'm bringing, We have a website, uh, www.nominahealth.ca, and it will connect you to any one of our clinics. And there's also an info, like a generic, hey, I'm looking to speak with someone about X, Y, or Z. We will match that. I often see them. Lisa, who's the clinical director of Nomina Wellness and our inpatient clinic in BC, as well as uh, oversees all of the clinics nationally. She sees a lot of these and she's able to, work with us and the other clinicians to figure out who might be the best fit for someone like with with whatever they're coming in with.
2: Okay, well, we will definitely link to that in our show notes. So if you're looking for more information, uh, you can find it there. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. You have just been a wealth of knowledge and information <laughs> and maybe really think differently about a few things, even about how I have um, responded in my own running career. And I hope that um, all you listeners gained something new in this show as well. So thanks, Dan. And, and thank you for joining
0: us. Yeah, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate the conversation and being able to get the message out there because a lot of people don't know. Yeah. They just don't know.
2: Amen. So,
0: thank you.